Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. We have somewhat neglected the VCT market so far on this podcast, but today we rectify this with two fund managers from Barron's Mead. Bevan Duncan focuses on unquoted companies and Ken Watton on quoted investments. We contrast these two areas, finding out where the approach has to be different and what stays the same. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So on today's podcast, we are joined by two people. We have uh, Bevan Duncan, who is Managing Director of Freedom Equity, and Ken Watton, who is Managing Director of Public Equity at Barron's Mead, or is it Gresham House now? So we, we work for Gresham House Asset Management, which is the, the manager for the Barron's Mead VCT. And as usual, we will start by asking you to introduce yourselves. So Bevan, maybe do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So, so my name is Bevan Duncan. As sort of mentioned, I'm a fund manager on the Barron's Mead VCTs. I originally trained uh, as an accountant with KPMG in Wellington in New Zealand. There, I sort of worked with several sort of small, high growth and entrepreneurial businesses. I sort of really enjoyed that. So when I come over to the UK in, in 2004, I wanted to sort of continue to do that. So I joined the Barron's Mead team shortly after that uh, and have obviously been working with them ever since. So I've worked with over 40 uh, private equity and venture capital investments set on a number of boards. That's my current sort of focus now. And how about you, Ken? So yeah, I'm Ken Watton. I, I head up the public equity uh, team at Gresham House and manage the, the AIM listed and public investments on behalf of Barron's Mead. So I'm co-fund manager with Bevan on the, on, the, on the trusts. I have a similar original career path and I, I also trained as an accountant at KPMG, completely coincidentally, but in London. I then moved into equity research at, at an investment bank, initially focusing on large companies and then lastly focusing on, on small cap companies, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I had the opportunity to move across to what was then ISIS Equity Partners, which managed the brands and VCTs at that point, to sort of focus on investing in small companies rather than advising other people on, on, on what they should be investing in. And I spent the last 13 years doing that and, and focusing on a whole variety of small companies, which is a, a really exciting, exciting job and quite a privilege. Excellent. So... As we mentioned, you both work for Gresham House and manage the Barons Mead VCTs. Perhaps it's worth just telling us a little more about what Gresham House does, particularly, and, and what Barons Mead is. Or you know, Gresham House is a, a listed asset manager. It's a specialist asset management um, focused on mainly alternative investments. So it has strategies in real assets, um, including forestry, renewable energy, sustainable infrastructure, and social housing. And then it has an equities business, which has a number of specialist strategies across public and private equity. The business has about three and a half billion of assets under management um, and has been growing very rapidly over the last few years. Yeah, so, and then if I explained sort of the Barron's Mead uh, VCT, so we manage two VCTs with a combined net asset value of in excess of three hundred and fifty million pounds. So, Barons Mead were one of the first VCTs launched in nineteen ninety five. So, long established a track record and well established brand in the venture capital market. So, uh, VCTs are, are listed, but they're tax efficient investment trusts for private 
investors. So retail investors can invest up to £200,000 each year into an established VCT portfolio, and they get tax reliefs on that as, as well as sort of tax-free dividends. And so we we invest in both quoted and unquoted businesses. The Barronsmead VCT is quite distinctive that we've got large portfolios and specialist teams managing those asset classes within the same vehicle. Uh, And we're focused on investing in earlier stage businesses which are growing quickly. Our focus is mainly in software and digitally driven businesses in the consumer healthcare and services sector. And we invest, but also uh, really sort of provide practical support to our businesses to really help them sort of accelerate growth and deliver their their growth plans. So we've got about 150 businesses within the portfolio across both the quoted and unquoted asset classes. Excellent. So you have the privilege of being the first VCT managers we've had on the podcast. Up to now, we've kind of focused on the EIS. So I thought it might be worth spending a moment on discussing perhaps what the difference is between managing a venture capital trust and managing an EIS fund. I know you're not an EIS fund manager, but I'm sure you, you've seen what they've done in the market. Yeah, so I think you know, one of the, the sort of key differences is that uh, as an investor coming into a, a VCT, you're investing into an established portfolio. So you get sort of immediate access to all the businesses that we've currently got holdings in and then obviously access to the sort of dividend streams uh, that sort of come off the back of that. And uh, that's one of the sort of key features of the Barronsmead VCTs and and the sort of VCTs more generally is the the payment of those sort of tax-free dividends. So versus the EIS funds, they tend to obviously be into individual investments so you're going into an investment and then, you know, waiting for that to be sold to generally to, to generate a return on your investment. So one's going into individual assets and EIS tends to be a little bit earlier than VCT and then uh, VCT investments obviously into an established portfolio. Yeah, it's quite interesting in one sense in that the rules allow VCTs and EIS to invest in exactly the same companies they're exactly the same rules. But in practice, you do get that difference about stage. Have you any idea why that might be? In, in terms of the sort of EIS investments typically being in, into, into slightly earlier stage companies than, than VCTs, I, I think it's partially a function of history and the kind of capabilities of the people who are, who are managing those products. Because VCTs, the rules of VCT and, and EIS have converged over, over, over recent years, but historically, VCT rules were a little bit more flexible in terms of, of the, the size of companies and the age of companies that, that they could invest in. Um, and so a lot of the managers have sort of come from a, a background of investing in sort of slightly bigger, more established businesses. And the margins on new deals has influences the type of things that, that the average VCT manager would go for versus an EIS. And, and also EIS is, is a much wider scheme. So there are professional EIS managers that invest in an institutional way, but there is a lot of EIS investment that goes into startups and early stage businesses that are done sort of more privately or through crowdfunding and that kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one, of, one of the distinctions, I, I think, is that there seems to be a lot more investment in quoted equity in VCT space than we get in EIS. I mean, there, there's, a, there's one EIS fund that's kind of devoted to, 
team listed stuff. And it perhaps, again, for, for those who are perhaps unaware, it's maybe worth sort of saying what the restrictions on what sort of quoted companies we can invest in. Yeah, so the rules that govern what you can and can't invest in are consistent between being AIM listed or, or being unquoted. So, so they relate to the sort of gross asset value of the company and the age of the company and, and, and various other sort of rules which are designed to promote investment into smaller earlier stage companies that may not otherwise receive funding. Through a sort of quirk of history, the, the AIM market, the junior market of the London Stock Exchange is from a tax perspective, is designated as as unquoted, even though the companies are, are listed, and, and you can trade the shares. So, but but in terms of the underlying companies, you know, the, the same company could be VCT qualifying if it was AIM listed or if it was private. In terms of the the reason why there's more listed companies in VCT versus EIS, I think it's because you know, funds were set up specifically to address that opportunity that was available in the tax legislation, which meant that. AIM-listed companies could attract VCT money and, and sort of established fund management businesses that invested in sort of non-tax-efficient products and saw it as an opportunity to, to attract funds, sort of invest in areas of the market which perhaps might have been seen as, as higher risk for sort of more mainstream funds. Yeah. So what we're going to do uh, for the next sort of half hour or so is we're going to focus on that difference between investing quoted and unquoted, because I think most investors who come to this are familiar with investing in quoted markets. But the way that VCTs particularly sell invest in quoted markets is somewhat different. And it's perhaps more akin to what you're doing in the unquoted markets. So in terms of when that investment comes in, can you tell us a bit more about when a, an investment opportunity comes along, how it differs between the quoted and the unquoted markets? Sure. So I, mean, I think that one of the main differences is that because companies are listed on the AIM market, part of the rules of, of being listed on AIM mean that they have to have a nominated advisor and, and broker who sort of looks after the sort of the number of the regulatory aspects of being listed. And so that means that typically, as a, an AIM VCT fund manager, a lot of the investment opportunities that you see are promoted to you by brokers that, that sort of deal in companies on the AIM market because they represent those companies. So we have to build relationships with quoted brokers and you know who also have businesses doing sort of wider things just in BCT qualifying companies. And it's typically through those relationships that we derive the opportunities to invest in, in AIM VCT companies. And, and it's important to, to note that part of the VCT rules, to make a VCT investment into a company, whether it's private or public, that it has to be new money into that company for the purposes of growth and development. So it means that typically on the AIM market, it will be companies either coming as an IPO, so a new listing, a new admission onto the market and raising new equity as part of that, or it will be existing listed, listed companies that are undertaking a placing of new equity in order to fund their growth plans, whether that be investing in their sales team or supporting working capital for research and development or, or various other different activities. So it, it's new equity and that, that typically has to have a sponsor and hence those relationships are really important. It's quite it's a bit different in, in the unquoted market, although advisors are uh, sort of an important conduit for some of the, the deal flow. And I think Bevan can probably explain better than I can the sources of opportunities on the unquoted side. On the unquoted side, we access deals... Obviously, through advisors, as, as Ken sort of mentioned, but but also 
through outbound marketing activity and really importantly through our network. The early stage investment community is is very collaborative. You know, we get a lot of deals coming in from our existing portfolio companies and also this sort of non-executives or executives and other sort of industry experts that are actively in our network. So they bring those deals uh, into us. So I'd say you know, it's a different type of relationship as well. It can be built up over a longer period of time. Uh, sometimes we've known the businesses for several years and possibly helped them along the way. They then get to a size and scale that it makes sense for us to invest in or they're, they're ready to take on new capital. And then we make that investment, obviously, following a sort of pretty extensive diligence process. So I'd say that the investment philosophy and the the things that we focus on when we're looking at a quoted or an unquoted investment are similar. Obviously, there's differences in terms of access to information between the two different types of companies. But you know, we do try and follow the same sort of investment style and answer similar questions, uh, regardless of whether it's going to be listed or privately held. So you mentioned about access to information. What effect does that have in diligence process? Is it a case of quoted companies are can give you less information, or um, how does that affect what you do? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's definitely the case. So, you know, for for a private investment, there are no regulatory restrictions on the information the company can can give to a potential investor, and hence you know, there's an opportunity to really to dive into the granular detail of of the company's trading information, financial information, and and that that is typically how the process. Works in quoted companies. The regulations around price sensitive information and, and sort of treating all stakeholders equally means that there, there is restrictions on the information that you, you can get practically, and so that does mean that as an investor, you're relying on publicly available information, and then you are having to make investment judgments based on the things that we believe are important to the investment case of the company. And whilst those judgments will be on similar areas between public and private, the depth of information that you get to support those judgments is is, is less and you have to you know, risk manage the portfolio appropriately to, to reflect that. And I think one and one way of doing that is sort of diversification in terms of the portfolio and kind of not putting too much money into any individual investment on day one when your your information is is more limited. You know, trying to be progressive about the, your deployment of capital into an individual company as you get to know it better over time and you effectively do your due diligence so as an investor and uh, as the companies deliver and as you get more comfortable with the, the track record of the management team delivering and, and as the, you build a relationship with them, then that gives you more confidence to sort of take bigger positions in, in, in those companies. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that strikes me as an obvious difference, which may be simplistic, is that in unquoted markets, you're kind of the price setter as the investor to some to greater extent, whereas in the quoted markets, you're kind of a price taker because of the already quote. Is that too simplistic, do you think? It's quite simplistic in that you know, each company and deal situation is is different. And certainly in, in the public markets, you know, there is a share price, but that is not necessarily indicative of kind of institutional size investment because it's set by the kind of marginal trading price of the shares which could be you know very small in, in terms of value and it can you know retail sort of transaction so you know, when the company is raising a material amount of money relative to the size of the company you know, there is a book building process that goes goes on to raise that money with institutional investors and the price is set by what that book is prepared to 
to pay. So depending on the company situation and our status in terms of being an existing investor or otherwise, or, or how important we are to whether or not the deal uh, is successful, now, that does give you some pricing leverage, although it's, you know, it's, it's clearly different in, in, in private markets. And I think in the private markets, Bevan can give some colour. But again, you know, the different company situations uh, give you very different levels of leverage on pricing. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, there is plenty of capital that is looking to be invested in the early stage sort of environment or or segment. So, you know, for, for particular assets, and if you think back over the last 12 months, the ones that have been sort of software or tech enabled that have been resilient and growing, you know, through this sort of pandemic, you know, when they've looked to raise money, they've been really quite competitive processes. Uh, and then you've got sort of less ability to negotiate on headline price, albeit, you know, we do try and structure our investments where we get downside protection through a preference share or in some cases a, a loan note which underpins a return so we can be a little bit less sensitive to that sort of headline price uh, and other situations and we sort of talked about the sort of dislocation in the market you know there, there is businesses that are, are really sort of high quality that have been impacted but we think have got a sort of strong positive long-term outlook there might be instances where you can sort of set the price a bit more. Mm-hmm. Certainly, there, there is clearly a market in the unquoted world. It's interesting about the degree to which things are competitive. I think I hear a lot of people talking about kind of proprietary deal flow where they're, as I think the idea being it's less competitive, but I'm not quite sure about how effective that really is because if you got too far away from what a market valuation would be, people would still go somewhere else. I think that's right. I think it is important to remember that it's a really high volume market, and there's there is a lot of opportunities. We sort of screened over 400 deals last year. We invested in sort of 10 companies. You know, there would have been more deals which we would have looked at more closely had had we had the resource. So, you know, we think it's pretty important to be sort of quite focused investors and sort of play and and look at parts of the market where you've got sort of IP and expertise and network to really help drive value. And that gives you the sort of confidence to sort of pay up and and sort of really support those companies post-deal. But it also enables you to potentially find businesses earlier and get them off market. But as the industry continues to mature and there's more capital, I think, you know, those real pure play proprietary deals uh, you know, th- there's just fewer of them. And I think the other thing, we try to differentiate ourselves, not just on the price that we're prepared to pay for, for investment, but also on what else we can bring to the, to, to that investment after we've invested. And um, there's a spectrum of kind of the level of influence involvement you have, depending on the stake that you've got and, and you know, public and private markets that are, are, are different in that respect to some degree. But in the areas where we focus, because we've got very well-developed network, we, have, you know, we can demonstrate to the company management teams that we have insights and expertise and knowledge and, and people that we can introduce that can be helpful to them from a business perspective. And that, that is valuable as well as uh, the headline price of the money that we, we bring. And you know, I think we, we want to invest with management teams that recognize that, that want to engage with us and you know, are open to our influence because they recognize that 
we can potentially bring something that they, they don't already have and they can't necessarily get elsewhere. That kind of segues into sort of the next topic I kind of wanted to discuss, which is in the unquoted market, what the relationship that you can have with the company is typically very close. What do you actually do in terms of that relationship for unquoted companies? Yeah, so through through our sort of due diligence process, what we're obviously looking to do is is sort of assess the quality of the business as an investment opportunity. But we're also really looking to prioritise what needs to happen in that first year post-investment, as well as build a relationship and sort of really assess the fit with the management team. And, and people are absolutely critical uh, in any business, but particularly in the early stage environment, because you're backing you know, small teams and usually two or three sort of key individuals. So our sort of uh, proactive supportive engagement starts, you know, right at that diligence pr- process. And then, you know, immediately sort of post the deal, we're really trying to establish good governance processes and good financial discipline and financial control. We introduce an, a non-executive chair, uh, someone that's typically got industry experience, but also got experience of of supporting and growing a business. So although we invest in different sectors, you know, small businesses typically face the same challenges when they grow, you know, finding quality people, you know, building the operational infrastructure to support scalability and really sort of firing the sales and marketing of their business to, to really acquire and retain customers quickly. So a chair is a key part of that sort of governance and mentoring of a, of a CEO. We also bring in a sort of strategic financial resource if that is not in the business. Uh, obviously, you know, we're investing into these companies to support accelerated growth. And we want to ensure, as the management teams do, that that's invested parts of the business that are going to drive the highest sort of return of investment. So there's quite high levels of engagement. We typically take a board seat or have a board observer right. But then we've also got, as we sort of touched on, some you know, experts, some of them in-house, so in-house talent person and in-house technology person to support the businesses, as well as a broader network of specialists in sales and marketing, on organization development, internationalization, digital marketing, et cetera, that we can introduce into the companies to sort of help them overcome those sort of common obstacles of scaling. So presumably when it comes to quoted companies, some of those are a little bit different. I would guess that boards are generally better developed. I'm not sure if they'll be perfect, but some of those sort of basics of governance things should be in place. So there is a fairly wide range in terms of, of A-listed companies, which obviously are, are less mature than, than main market-listed companies. I think they do have boards of directors which are more developed often, but you know, not necessarily always the, the right quality or the, or the kind of right skill sets uh, for, for the journey they're about to go on. So as investors in quoted companies, we naturally have less influence than we would do in a private situation where we've got the rights to, to put somebody on the board. We typically don't take board seats in public companies, although occasionally we do. But we do typically end up as either the largest or one of the, the top few shareholders in companies we invest in on the AIM market. And that means we do have influence on the company, particularly as 
know, a likely funder of, of future growth initiatives for the, for the business. So we would categorize the, sort of our approach to public market investing as taking a private equity approach to public markets. And that means being more engaged with the companies than perhaps a typical public market investor would be. And the fact that we have both public and private equity within the same business, and you know, Bevan and I and our team work very closely together, we have that diversity of, of touch points within public and private markets within the same sector. We have a network of people that spans both public and private. Those experts that Bevan mentioned that both within our business and within our network are people that we can introduce to public companies as well as private. And whilst we're not trying to force that down the throats of the, of, of the public companies if they're not open to it. Again, we're trying to to invest behind management teams that that are sort of forward-looking, that are open to influence and therefore recognise that you know, some of the people we can introduce to them actually can genuinely add value to their business. So whilst we don't have all the same uh, levers to pull as you might, might do in a, in a private company situation, we do try to sort of engage with them on a similar basis. It seems to me that one of the circumstances where that matters is where things perhaps aren't going terribly well. It seems to be where a company is progressing and, and doing fine, then all those sort of things work reasonably well or, or almost the same in sort of the quoted unquoted space. But if you have a company that's having problems, is it the case in an unquoted company you can dive in, roll up your sleeves a little bit and get more involved in a way that you can't in quoted companies? Or is that, again, is is is... Is there more that you can do? Well, I think in, in, in the public company situations, yeah, you're, you're right. You, there are more barriers to sort of getting deeply involved in the company uh, in a situation where it's going wrong. But there are ways of doing that, and we're not afraid to sort of get our hands dirty and, and, and get involved if we if we feel it's necessary. And we're in the area of the market that we focus. You know, there are a lot of similar investors that are prepared to invest in in the smaller end of the market and. We, we do try to engage with other investors where we believe there's sort of an agenda which is beneficial for shareholder value, which you know, where where we should be aligned. And so, if there's changes required in a in a, in a company um, which we can't on our own necessarily influence, then then we may try to engage with other shareholders to try and sort of give us additional support to to make that happen. But you know, obviously, we try to avoid those situations if we can. But I, th- I think it's also worth saying that even in situations where companies are going well. There are things they could be doing better. There's always sort of additional best practices they could be implementing. There's always people that can give them a different perspective and can sort of help to accelerate growth more than, than they could do on their own or you know, give them an opportunity or, or uh, access to a black book, which kind of gives them additional customer opportunities. So we still try to engage on companies that are going well and give them introductions to people or processes that could potentially make them do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know how that compares with the challenges of the unquoted side. I mean, is it still easy to for you to sort of jump in and and, and do more when things go wrong? It's definitely easier than the than the sort of public side, sort of uh, absolutely. So, and actually, the way that we've structured the private equity team or the unquoted team, so we've got people that are focused on originating and executing new transactions, and then a team that are really sort of focused on sort of working closely with the portfolio companies post-deal to help them sort of execute their growth plans and ultimately deliver a liquidity or a realisation event. And we do that because we think that the skill set is slightly different. 
but also it, it's like anything in life. I think if you focus on something, you know, exclusively, you, you tend to develop better skills and and better results. So, you know, we we obviously have got a portfolio. So there's companies that don't perform as as expected, and and I think it's really just trying to assess what hasn't gone right. You know, is it is it a skills gap or is it a capability gap? Then you know, we, we obviously work closely with the management teams to try and sort of fill that. If it's something more sort of fundamental, so ultimately we've just, you know, picked a market which isn't as big as we expected or the competitive dynamic has, has changed significantly, then we have to be a bit more creative and you know, think about sort of potentially merging or finding a new strategy or direction that we might fund. Or ultimately, you know, if, if we feel that the business you know, would be better part of a larger organisation or under the ownership of a, of a different sort of financial investor, then, then we might look to, to sort of sell out our holding and that sort of frees up our time. It's best for the business, but also from our perspective, allows us to really sort of focus on those assets that are going to drive the upside return because they're just more inherently sort of scalable. So obviously different sort of levels of engagement and ability to influence, but again, sort of the same types of sort of things that we're trying to achieve and deliver for both quoted and unquoted, I think. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me the other natural difference is the availability of ongoing liquidity to a greater or lesser extent. And I know unquoted markets are perhaps improving a little bit in that, although it's terribly slow. But it's, it seems to me that raises a, an interesting challenge for you in that if I say unquoted companies, you're waiting for that opportunity. And until that exit opportunity comes along, you can't really do much. Whereas for quoted companies, there is that ongoing liquidity and the ability to sell is kind of always there as an option. How does that affect how you look at things? I think uh, it's a fair observation. But what I would say is that if you've got a a high growth business that is scaling well, it's a large market opportunity, it's got clear differentiation, et cetera, then you, know, you will always be able to sell those businesses. There's plenty of capital. If you look at the mid-market private equity funds, they've raised record amounts of you know, new capital and they need to invest that. Corporate trade buyers are very active. You know, we're, we're obviously seeing sort of US private equity and US trade buyers look into the UK as well. So so I think for those high potential, high quality assets, there's always going to be a buyer. I think you're right in, in terms of the businesses that possibly struggle to scale or are a bit small for, to attract that type of capital, then yes, you do need to, to sort of wait. And in those situations, in some of those situations, it would be likely that we would potentially fund bridging the business to that next stage if it made sense for our shareholders uh, so to open up that next pool of capital. And, and I think just following on from that, in, in terms of the public investments in, in, that VCTs have, first of all, these are companies that are you know, at the smaller end of, this, of this, the spectrum in terms of market capitalization and therefore you know, for, for an institutional investor to, to have an institutional size position, you know, those stakes are not necessarily liquid on a day-to-day basis, so you can necessarily sell all of your shares at the price on the screen on, on any given day. So 
we're sort of experts in managing that kind of liquidity challenge at the, at the bottom end of the, the, the listed markets. I remember from my days as a fund manager that sometimes you had to be very patient. Yeah, you do, you do, you do have to be patient. I think it also is the case that these smaller listed companies, again, if they're successful and you know, have some strategic value, value to them, then you know, not only are other stock market investors potentially interested in them, but also trade buyers or private equity are also looking at these companies. And we, Pre-COVID, we we were definitely seeing an elevated level of takeover activity on the smaller end of the public markets. But nevertheless, your, your original comment you know, is, is valid in that there is greater access to liquidity potentially you know, for, for, for parts of your stake in public markets. And you know, we've certainly taken advantage over the course of uh, the last year in, in the very strong performance in certain sectors, particularly technology and healthcare, to top slice some of our larger investments where They've done well where the share prices have gone up and where there is demand from other institutional investors to, to buy into those businesses. We've been able to take profits by selling part of our stake, which you know, has enabled us to drive liquidity for our shareholders. And, and that's what you know, has enabled us to, to, to pay consistent dividends over the years. So we have a good blend of probably a little, little bit more lumpy in terms of liquidity for the private investments and, and an ability to smooth that out to some extent with some of the the quota portfolio in order to, to generate consistent liquidity sort of year on year. And that sort of top slicing you mentioned, is that more about valuation and companies reaching targets or is that more about portfolio management? Oh, it's, it's, it's a bit of both. I think it's, it's always good to sort of bank some of your profits. <laughs> Unrealised gain is, is all very well, but you know, what shareholders care about and what funds the dividends for, for Barrington shareholders is realised profits. So, we need to be sort of mindful of that and make sure that we consistently focus on generating some liquidity from the portfolio every year. There's an element of portfolio management in that companies that do well and grow and become you know, more liquid, they're typically the ones which sort of grow in size as a proportion of the portfolio. And we need to sort of ensure that you know, we don't have undue sort of exposure to any individual company. So that's, so that's part of it as well. Yeah, it, it is a portfolio. And because we have exposure to 150 different companies through the Barrensmead vehicles, and that means we do you know, that diversification and the mix of, of quota and unquota, which is sort of unusual for, for VCT funds at scale in the same fund. And that does give us a bit more flexibility to use quota to get liquidity in some years and, and unquoted in, in other years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one of the interesting things, I think, in a macro term is that We've seen a reduction in the number of quoted companies and the number on AIM has steadily declined over the last few years. At the same time, we've seen increasing funds heading towards private markets. How have you seen that affect the relative attraction or the relative availability of suitable opportunities for you in the quoted and unquoted space? I would say, I mean, it's definitely the case that private markets have taken market share from small cap listed companies over the last sort of 15, 20 years. And that's been kind of progressive. And we see globally that private equity as an asset class and, and venture capital is growing as a relative proportion of, of, of overall invested assets. You know, and, that, and that's one of the things that sort of Gresham House is, is, is trying, has been trying to sort of take advantage of by, with its strategies. I think with the AIM market, it is certainly the case that over the course of my career, the number of companies listed on AIM has reduced, but at the same time, the average market cap and 
know, anecdotally, the average quality of the companies, I think, has, in, has increased and improved. So you could argue that if you looked at the AIM market in sort of 1999, 2000, at the sort of height of the dot-com boom, you know, there was a lot of listed companies on AIM, but you know, there was a, sort of a lot of them were of questionable quality. And then you had mm-hmm. you had a, a sort of period sort of after that in the early 2000s where there were a lot of, sort of mining and oil and gas exploration companies which were very high risk and sort of binary outcomes of opportunities. I think there are still some of those, but a lot of that has has fallen away. And it's those types of, of, of companies, the higher risk, more volatile, more speculative types of businesses that have disappeared from the AIM market either through natural attrition or sort of coming to market because of less demand for those. And, and so the quality has improved and it's much more institutional now than it used to be when I first started investing in this in, the, in this market. And I think that's, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think from a unquoted or private equity perspective, you know, things like sort of the EI schemes and, and VCTs, but, but also just the broader shift to, to private asset classes, obviously, given interest rates have stayed so long for, you know, sort of large asset managers looking to, to sort of get a return. You know, there's clearly been a, a huge growth in the private equity and venture capital space. And, and that's created real ecosystems, not only in London, but sort of throughout the UK. There's a lot more sort of early stage businesses and, and people you know, looking to start their own business as opposed to going into consultancies or big four or, or whatever they, they did. So there's that's really created, you know, a real volume of businesses to look at. As I said earlier, you know, we are screening a huge number of companies each year and we expect that to sort of continue. I think the absolute critical thing is that as an investor that you're clear on the parts of the market that you want to invest in. And and we look to deploy capital in parts of the economy that are experiencing long-term structural growth. Uh, digital transformation is, is obviously one of those and the shift to e-commerce models, um, cybersecurity and business resilience are themes that we've been investing in for the past sort of two years and that have obviously really accelerated through the sort of pandemic. So that combined with, you know, having that sort of capability to invest, to, to sort of deploy post-deal is sort of absolutely sort of critical in the market that is is sort of very large and very fragmented. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're, to some extent, neutral on the changes that we've seen. Do you think that the sort of increased emphasis on private markets is a good thing for the economy as a whole, because certainly people seem to lament the decline of of quoted companies, but I'm not really sure in my mind how good or bad it really is. I think that the the, the, the ecosystems that Bevan just referenced, I think, is a good thing. There are now pretty sophisticated investors out there that can provide capital to private companies, and that is growth capital that allows those businesses to develop to employ more people and ultimately to generate profits and pay more tax. So I think that that is undoubtedly a good thing. I think the, the VCT EIS industry plays an important role in, in, in doing that. I think, you know, should we be lamenting the reduced number of public companies? No, I don't think so. I think these, these things go in, in, in cycles. And I think you know, one thing that the pandemic period has demonstrated is that 
when companies need new capital, public markets are a pretty efficient way of, of delivering that. And you've seen certainly in, in some of the sectors you know, like travel and leisure and retail that, um, that have been particularly hard hit by the lockdown restrictions and, and sort of economic conditions that, that we've seen over the past year. You know, a lot of, of good quality sort of companies that have, have long-term positive opportunities but were short-term impacted, you know, they were able to tap their investors uh, on the public markets and you know, fairly quickly in, in sort of springtime last year and raise new capital to make sure that they were in a position to, to trade through and also make sure that they were well capitalised to take advantage of opportunities that would arise when, you know, once things start to normalise. And, and so that will certainly not have gone unnoticed by entrepreneurs and, and business managers of current private companies who, who, who can see that there actually is liquidity and, and capital available in public markets, which gives them flexibility and an opportunity to grow. So I think the two things can can uh, operate side by side. And, and certainly for us as investors that do both public and private, and we have that kind of crossover capability, we're relatively agnostic as to whether a company that we want to invest in is, pub- is public or private. I think we, you know, we focus first and foremost on the quality of the company and the opportunity, and then you know, we have the flexibility to provide them capital you know, if, if the right thing for them is to be public or private, you know, and that's down to the individual company situation. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself encouraging companies to, to list or discouraging them from listing? I, I think we, we, we take it on a very much a case-by-case basis. I think there are pros and cons of being public, and you know, it's not right for every company, but it is right for some companies. And I think it, it's about being sympathetic to the requirements of the management teams and, and the existing shareholders of, of, of companies and understanding what their what their plans are and how they intend to grow and sort of generate shareholder value. And for some companies, the, the public markets are, are exactly right for that. And for others, they're not. And so we're pragmatic about it. And I'd like to think we give the advice to the companies that is appropriate for that company based on what they want to do. Okay, so what I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So I'll, I'm aware it was two people on the podcast. I'm going to have to get two answers. So whichever, whoever wants to take them first, I'm happy to, to hear. So what's the most recent publicly announced investment that you made and why did you make it? Shall I go first, Ken? So uh, we recently invested... Five million pounds into a business called eConsult. So eConsult was a digital triaging business selling its software into the primary care sector. So it's a market leader at supplying sort of this online or digital diagnostic tool into GPs in the UK. So what what that enables you know the patient to do is upload sort of symptoms or sort of illnesses before going to the GP and allows the GP to review those. And in some cases, they can prescribe uh, off the back of the information that's sort of been provided. Or it does mean that also that they can sort of prioritise the patients that need to have a face-to-face meeting with their doctor. So obviously very sort of topical at the moment, uh, given the pressure that sort of health system is is under due to sort of COVID. But but also, again, there's a a long-term efficiency driver that technology can support in that market. So we've invested to really cement the position that companies got in the GP market, and then also extend into accident emergency 
and into more broadly secondary care so that data from that patient can flow all the way through the health system to create a patient journey. Okay, that sounds very promising and very topical. From, from a public perspective, the most recent and notable investment that, that I've made is in, into an IPO last year of a company called Cooth, which also happens to be in the a similar space to, to eConsult, actually, and it's a good example of us sort of having good knowledge and, and capability and, and confidence to invest behind a theme. Cooth is a provider of digital mental health services to the NHS mainly. It also sells some services to, to corporates as well, but it's the leading provider of, of services in a digital way to, to people with mental health issues in, in a in effectively a an NHS region will will buy this software and, and and the service proposition that sits behind it, and then it will market it to the community in, in its local area. And it's particularly focused on children and young people. So if there's a child who has issues with you know, bereavement or depression or bullying or, or, or various other issues that affect mental health, they can access online to repositories of information. They can try and understand what they might be able to do about it and if they need to they can access live uh, accredited counsellors um, in a digital way through some, through an anonymized text-based platform in order to sort of talk about their problems and, and hopefully find some resolution and the, the advantage of this is that they're effectively from an NHS point of view and also from a patient point of view getting people early and giving them some support early avoids things getting more acute and and Know, putting a greater burden on the NHS and having a much sort of more severe patient outcome later. This company's been going for 10 years. It's, as I said, it's the leading player in its space within the UK. And there's an opportunity for this company. The reason why it listed is that it wants to potentially expand internationally and also provide a sort of wellness version of its solution into the corporate um, market as well. So really quite an exciting company and hopefully doing some some social good as well. Yeah, again, it sounds like a very, as you say, socially aware investment. So in the, in the classic venture capital triumvirate of market products or management, we know they're all important, but which one do you think is the most important and why? Yeah, I think there's it's a sort of famous Warren Buffett quote, isn't there? When a great management team meets a very challenging industry, the, the industry retains its reputation. So if you pick the wrong market, the sort of market dynamic moves against you, then it's incredibly difficult to drive an investment return on the basis that we're investing at a relatively early stage. So our companies are small you know, versus the market opportunity. That's less of a challenge for us. So you know, the big thing and focus for us is management and quality of the people. You know, we're backing small businesses you know, with two or three key executives usually one entrepreneur driving that team. If you back the right person, then a lot of the other things tend to fall into place. And I, I would absolutely echo that. I think you know, we, we, we're quite clear about the markets and the types of business model that we like investing in. And if you find one of those, then the, the, the kind of key driver after that is the quality of the management team because the quality of your your team that can one drive the growth if things are going well, but also are agile enough and, and can react in the right way to to mitigate risk when things don't go according to plan. And I think it's it is very much the case that in small companies things don't go in a straight line, and you need a management team that is flexible and adaptable and can 
to spot the opportunities and mitigate the risks in, in a way that perhaps bigger companies find it more difficult to do. And so you know, professional managers make more sense in big companies, but also more easily replace them. Mm-hmm. So tell us about a time you failed and what did you learn from it? Um, how long have we got left? <laughs> <laughs> just one. Just one. <laughs> okay. Um, I can't sort of give the specifics of the company, but uh, you know, definitely sort of early on in, in my career, got some hiring wrong. And you know, one of the key things that we do is, is look to build out sort of the management capability and, and bring in skills that are going to support the business to accelerate growth. And as I described earlier, you know, small teams, getting that dynamic right, getting the fit right, as, as much as getting the skill set right, is, is fundamental to success. And I think you know, not taking the time to really understand an individual sort of capability and fit with the existing management team is definitely sort of a mistake that I've made. And if you get one hire wrong in that very small team, it can really disrupt uh, the business and their ability to sort of make decisions and, and execute well. So, you know, we we take a lot of time with our sort of key hiring decisions. We, we meet the executives on a number of occasions in different sort of environments, sort of more social environments, more formal environments, we spend a lot of time doing third-party referencing uh, and also just having very sort of open and honest conversations about sort of ambition and drive and and what that individual is looking to bring and how that dovetails with our objectives as investors but also the existing sort of management team because when you get it right, it's fantastic. But when you get it wrong, it definitely sets you back, you know, six to 12 months at least because – then if you don't get it right, you invariably need to make a change. You need to go through that process again. So that's an area where we've really developed our capability and thinking to help us get that right more often than not. Um, and I, so being a fund manager and, and investing in small companies, I've made lots of mistakes and I've failed lots of time. And I think you can't, you can't be a good investor if you haven't had some setbacks and, and, and tried to learn from them. I think one, one of the Sort of most notable ones I can think of in my career is uh, we, we backed a business called Green Compliance for, for Barons Mead. It's a name listed company focusing on blue collar c- compliance services, of so fire certification, water sort of certification, that kind of thing, which is there were services which are you know, absolutely mandatory and, and with regulatory drivers for the companies that, that were the customers of the, these services to actually do. So we felt it was well underpinned. We had a management team that were you know, had a great track record of having done a sort of buy and build strategy in, in, in similar markets in a different company. And it went very well initially. And what we got wrong was the company management team, you know, they, were, they were very aggressive and they, they made a lot of acquisitions, but they did that in a business which had operational gearing and financial leverage. They used debt to acquire a number of the businesses. And you know, that, that, that sort of created a... a compounding risk and then in, in the financial crisis in 2008-2009 the, the mandatory services where we thought kind of were, were very resilient actually companies did stop doing what they should have been doing um, because they were under financial pressure and that meant that the earnings went backwards for, for this business they bought a lot of companies and perhaps hadn't integrated them as well as we, we hoped they would 
and they had financial leverage and that kind of that all, all those things combined ends up unraveling we, we we sort of lost most of our investment in that company i think what, what i learned from it is you can take one material risk knowingly in a business but you, know, you probably shouldn't be taking more than one which in certain circumstances can can compound and i think with this one we we had a sort of cyclical risk we hadn't quite understood we had the risk of you know acquisitions which you know we did understand and then we had financial risk on top of that which in, in, in the circumstances we found ourselves in all con- conspired to, to hurt our investment very materially. So you know, I, I, w- I would be very circumspect against about backing a buy and build strategy, which was also very highly leveraged as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's um, leverage is something that seems to be, I, I was going to say toxic was maybe on phrase, but definitely to be used with caution in our industry. I think, where we, as you say, where you have a lot of other risks, that compounding effect can be significant. The EIS VCT industry that we work in is far from perfect. If you could change one thing about it, what would you change? For me, it's around the rules around follow-on investing. So I think you know, when, when the, the VCT rules were tightened in, in uh, the end of 2015, one of the things that was introduced was a cap on the total amount of VCT and EIS and tax-efficient funding that a company could take over its lifetime. And whilst I understand the, the sort of rationale and theory for, for why they're trying to do that, i.e. providing government subsidy on, on uh, or tax, tax subsidy on, on investment only up to a certain level in companies that would maybe not get investment elsewhere, I think what it does create is in certain situations when a company has maxed out on the amount of VCT capital it can take, we as investors then may not be able to support it in, in more difficult times. So COVID is a fantastic example where you know, certain companies could no longer attract VCT investment from their shareholders, but because of the risks around, around the, the market environment, it was very difficult for them to attract funding from other sources. And you know, so, so that, that rule effectively doesn't support the company in difficult times, potentially, and also kind of creates a difficult situation for VCT uh, shareholders who can't follow their money. And so if a company does raise money, it may be very dilutive for, for existing shareholders, which is, is not very attractive for our shareholders. So I think that, that's the kind of key thing I would change. And from my perspective, again, sort of linked to the rule change that happened in 2015, which stopped VCTs from doing some cash out. And I'm not suggesting that the rules revert back to enable VCTs to sort of do buyouts and replacement capital deals. But having the flexibility to do an element of, of cash out, I think, will be helpful for for several reasons. I think, you know, key part of why the model works well is that you've got sort of real alignment and the right risk profile uh, between the sort of management teams and the, the rest of the institutional shareholder base. Uh, being able to do a bit of cash out will help, you know, maybe sort of uh, buy out some of the early EIS investors that possibly want an exit and don't want to be diluted down by sort of future rounds and obviously aren't actively contributing to the business or potentially not doing that. But also, you know, to de-risk a founder financially, people obviously can focus very heavily on building their business and and a lot of their wealth, if not all of it, is tied up in the business that they're building. And to be able to give them a bit of cash out earlier to sort of ease their personal financial position, I think, will be helpful in building the right sort of 
plan going forward that's got the right level of risk in it for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is an idea that some people have some very strong views on because I have heard the founder should stay invested and they should never sell a share. But there are, there are circumstances seems to me where that's just too much. Where you know, if someone's worried about paying the mortgage or sending, you know, or paying the school fees, you should you allow that? And, and I think the the question then sort of says, how much should you actually allow? I don't know if you have a view on that. Uh, look, I think that's the the more difficult question to answer, and it and it needs to be on sort of an individual sort of basis. But pulling a number out there, could it be sort of twenty percent of the overall twenty percent of the overall investment? You know, that sounds sort of sensible, but you definitely do see an entrepreneur's sort of risk profile change when they get to that point, and they either don't want to take risk because they're sort of concerned about sort of losing the business they've built, or they take excessive risk because they're clearly looking to grow the business as quickly as possible to get a significant sort of payday. So I think it's, you know, the psychology and the alignment part of having some cash out is is really important. Personally, I definitely agree with that. So lockdown has been fantastic for my reading. I realized I've managed to get through 54 books last year which is a record for me. Any books that you would recommend? That's an impressive number of books that you've read. Um, the, the one that I've read over, over Christmas, which I really enjoyed and, and you know, would definitely recommend to, to anyone, is Matthew Syed's Rebel Ideas, which is his most recent book. He's a Times journalist and is really trying to explore the, the, the strapline of it is the power of diverse thinking. So it's, it's sort of taking the, the idea that, you know, a diverse group of individuals, because of their sort of different perspectives on a problem, can deliver a better outcome and, and better solution to, to problems than a single individual or a group of individuals with very similar backgrounds that have a very similar way of thinking about things. Uh, and it's, it's pretty topical at the moment, given you know, diversity being pretty high up a, a lot of companies' agenda. But I think it, it provides some pretty compelling case studies of how Sort of non-diverse thinking created major issues. So things like the CIA, 9-11, and a particular expedition up, up Everest, where which ended in disaster. And then some really good examples of, of how diversity of thinking created some more elegant or, or sophisticated solutions to problems which uh, might not otherwise have, have come about. So I definitely recommend that book to anybody. That does sound interesting. That's a new one to me, so I shall look, be looking that one up. Bevan. So my book's not sort of too dissimilar. So it actually came out sort of a few years ago. So it's a book by Michael Lewis, who obviously wrote sort of Liars Poker and The Big Short. But this book's called The Undoing Project, and it sort of covers the sort of relationship and work of two sort of Israeli psychologists, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, that they sort of founded behavioral economics. And they sort of really explore sort of decision-making and sort of the natural biases that we have in sort of making decisions and how unobjective people are and typically sort of make quick emotional-based decisions and sort of really advocates sort of recognising those and obviously trying to eliminate those and and clearly sort of a diverse group of people to to form judgments is is sort of part of that. But it really sort of focuses you on evidence-based decision-making, which is something that's obviously sort of relevant to our job. It's it's easy to sort of get caught up in in a story and someone that's very persuasive, but 
you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're always looking for sort of evidence points to sort of validate an investment judgment. So it's a, it's a great book, but also sort of Michael, Michael Lewis is clearly sort of very good sort of storyteller. Absolutely. I haven't read that one, but I've read two or three of his other books. And as you say, thoroughly enjoyable. And I'm, I'm, I'm fans of Kahneman Tversky as well. I remember when I came across Prospect Theory, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. The idea that you had a sort of asymmetric risk tolerance. Once you sort of realize, actually, it does make a huge amount of sense. So what do you wish you knew when you started with Baronsmead that you know now? For me, it's really about having confidence in the breadth of your knowledge as an investor relative to the depth of knowledge that a company management team would have. You know, I, I would never expect to or pretend to know more about how to run a business than, than the chief executive or entrepreneur that's, that's running a company that we might invest in. You know, they know more about their product, their customers and the, the market opportunity than I do. But what being a, an investor with a, a very wide variety of experience in terms of different businesses and models and people that we, we come across, what it gives you is a really good view of best practice. And I think it took me quite a few years to realize that that breadth of knowledge and experience brought something to the table that the management team didn't have, which they just didn't, don't see as many businesses as we do. So they don't know what they don't know, and they haven't necessarily seen best practice in action in, in, in certain elements of their business. So I, I think having the confidence to let management teams know about the best practices you've seen elsewhere and trying to encourage them to be more open-minded and to think about it, I think that's something which... I find extremely useful now. And I think if I'd known that right from the beginning, I might have sort of avoided some of the mistakes that I've made. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, it's a bit of a common theme really centered around people and, and high quality people. I think sort of early, early on in my career, you spend a lot of time focused on sort of market and market dynamics and, you know, and product, but, but ultimately if you back sort of high quality people, as we've discussed several times, you know, that it tends to be a sort of really big unlocker. And, you know, if I had sort of one superpower, I think you know, the ability to really assess a person's ability to execute a plan and then to really attract high quality talent and retain that talent, you know, I would have started working on that sort of much earlier in my career. And, and that's the most fascinating part of our job as well. It's all about the sort of people and the relationships that you build and the sort of satisfaction that you get sort of working alongside of an entrepreneurial management team and building a great business. So I probably would have sort of focused more on that earlier in my career to sort of just develop that skill set more rapidly. I agree with that. I think that, you know, what I said right at the beginning, it was a privilege to do the, the job that I did. I think that's sort of a key component of it. You, you know, where else do you get the opportunity to see such a diverse group of interesting businesses with driven entrepreneurial people who are making things happen. We're very lucky to have a, uh, an interesting job where you get access to that. Yes. No, I, I have a lot of sympathy with that. As, as someone who was a quoted fund manager and has come to this sort of about five years ago, it seems to me a way more interesting space. So I'll, I'll definitely second that. So someone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Gresham House or Baronsmead. Where should they go? Uh, the Baronsmead website is a pretty good source of information. We've got a mix of obviously the sort of annual accounts, but but also there's an investor guide. There's also webinars that we've done over the, the past 12 months that give you a sort of greater level of depth into the portfolio and the investment philosophy and, and the types of deals that we're doing. So 
it's a pretty good all-round source of information. Excellent. And we'll post a link to that on the show notes. So Ken, Bevan, thank you very much for giving us your time today. That's been a great discussion. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having us. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.